Hey, man, it's me, Kevin Smith. Are you listening to the right podcast? Because you're supposed to be listening to Three Guys in a Flick. Are you listening to that right now? Then you're in the right place. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The show is about to begin. I want to tell you about the time I almost died. Welcome back. You are listening to Three Guys in a Flick. This is where we review the good, the bad, and the absurd. Tonight's episode, Fallen. Beware, spoilers. Coming to you from the Milano cabin way out in the woods, my name is Don. And to my right, we have our comic book guy, John. Hey, why do you keep trying to touch me? Because time is on my side, baby. And to my left, we have the professor, Ken. Hello, everybody. How are you guys doing tonight? Groovy. Groovy? Well, I'm definitely not full of shit. Why is that? Because I got to have my first colonoscopy today, and I am still here to record tonight. All right. All right. Hopefully all was good. Or do you know yet? As far as I know, the doctor said I am good to go. All right. Good. Good to hear. And I advise all of our listeners, when you get between 45 and 50, get it done We want to keep you around. We need people listening to this show, so stay alive. Tonight we're talking about Fallen. Fallen comes to us because it was the professor's pick, so I got to know, buddy. Why Fallen? Uh, It's been a couple years since I've seen it. Uh, Maybe maybe two years. I like watching this every couple years. It's a good movie. I think that it was mildly surprising that John didn't come back to us and say, which Fallen are we supposed to watch? Are we supposed to watch the 2022, or are we talking about the 2018 version from Korea, or the 2017 documentary? I thought for sure that that was going to come out, and it never did. I half expected that as well. Sadly, I only know the Denzel Washington one. I don't know any of those other ones. <laughs> well, to be fair, neither do I. But when you Google or when you search yeah. for Fallen, Denzel's not always number one that pops up. Oh, trust me. When I was looking for information and for graphics and things like that to use on our website and in our notes, I was coming across more of stuff not related to the Denzel Washington movie. So, Oh, sure. Oh, sure. And actually, this movie is in the Bronco helmet, but I think one of us submitted it. So Really? Yeah, I think so. But so you're you're on track, buddy. You are adhering to the three guys guidelines. And it was actually you, Don, that submitted it. You oh. told me to add it to the list. <laughs> there you go, Professor. Your stock just went up that much more. So released on January 16th, 1998, Fallen was directed by Gregory Hoblet. Screenplay by Nicholas Kazan. And it stars Denzel Washington, John Goodman, Donald Sutherland, and Beth Davids, James Gandolfini, Elias Coteus, and a bunch of other actors. How'd this movie do, Don? This movie was made for $46 million and it brought in, is that right, $25 million? Yeah, for its opening, it didn't do so well, but I guess uh, audience reaction originally was pretty negative because it was one of those horror movies that kind of gave the big middle finger to the fans... Right at the end of the movie. Sure. Uh, did you see this in the theater? I did not see it in the theater. And I remember the first time I saw it thinking, well, that's kind of a lousy ending. But it has gone on to be a movie that has you know, achieved, I think, cult status, as well as the fact the more you think about it, it makes sense the way the movie ended. 
What about you? Did you see it in the theater? I did not. I remember before this movie coming out being so excited uh, for it that I was working at a hotel, and at the hotel they had movies that were still in theaters, and I talked to one of the guys, and I was able to get the tape, and I got to watch it. And I remember thinking at that ending, I was like, fuck yeah. That Stone songs kick in, it's Sympathy for the Devil, and it just, you know, at the time I was like, right on, right on. Did you know, I, I couldn't find it, but there is a fan edit out there that's actually a very popular fan edit called Azazel, where they have re-edited it so that uh, Denzel wins in the end. Yeah, I heard about that. Listeners, if anybody knows where we can get a copy of that, please put it in the comments. So this movie was directed by Gregory Hoblet, and, you know, it wasn't until I looked him up. He directed Frequency. Did you ever see Frequency? Mm-hmm. What about you? Did you ever see Frequency? I think I may have. Is that the time travel one where uh, the guy I, talks to his dad? Yeah, I, I mean, something? I guess it's time travel, I suppose. Yeah, it's some radio thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hence Frequency. Uh, I really dig that. Do you know where the uh, the writer and director that came up with the idea of this movie, like what it's based on? No. I thought it was kind of an interesting concept. The idea that evil is contagious and the idea is, uh, let's say you go into a coffee shop and somebody, you know, is rude to you or bumps you in the back and you take that bad mojo, you go into work and you talk bad to a coworker and then that coworker goes home and talks bad to a family member, something like that. And they talk about how evil is contagious. And they thought, what if it was like a spirit that passed between each person when something bad like that happens. Oh, I thought it was a fantastic concept. Yeah, so I love that. It was a great idea. What about you? Do you like the idea? Oh yeah, absolutely. And what's really nice about how this unfolds, it starts out as a police story. It's, it's a story about cops, but it totally goes in a different direction and it ends being a supernatural story. Yeah. So I thought that it was a really nice balance between the two, you know, having the police trying to wrap their heads around what is this, what is this, you know, this murderer that is killing people in this particular fashion and then to have it devolve down to the supernatural and then we go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. What'd you guys think of this cast? Denzel rock solid. Even if the movie is bad, he always delivers an amazing performance. So, I mean, you know how like when we did The Greatest Showman, it automatically goes to 2.5 because of Hugh Jackman? Mm -hmm. This one automatically goes to 2.5 because of Denzel. I'm sorry. That's just the way it is. He is the fucking man. Did you hear uh, one of the new movies they announced he's making? Equalizer 3. Equalizer 3. I I love the Equalizer series, so I can't wait to see the third one. I'm a fan because he's just... He's just a badass. Yeah. Right. Do you have a favorite Denzel movie? Oh, good question. This is this is in the top ten. You can have more than one. I know, but I mean the first thing that pops into my or the first Denzel. Oh, remember the Titans? I I kind of thought maybe that'd be right up in the top two. You know what I mean? It's just because because <laughs> it's Denzel. Uh, I I really want to watch Man on Fire again. Oh, it's mm. been a it's been a day since I've seen that. I should. Do that. The first equalizer is fun. Um, you know, one that Glory, Philadelphia. There's I mean, one fuck, big we one you're missing that I feel like gets quoted all the time. De- of a Denzel? Denzel. Okay, hang on. What's yours? Uh, it's probably going to be a tie between Training Day and Inside Man. As soon as I was started thinking of catchphrases, King Kong, yeah. Yeah. Solid choices. 
Solid choices. Well, Denzel wins the Oscar for Training Day, right? Yep. Actor. He got supporting actor for Glory. Yeah. Uh, he was really fun to watch in Crimson Tide as well. I, I like that too. Oh, and I, and I have a soft spot for Book of Eli. Oh, Book of Eli. Absolutely. Denzel can do no wrong. I was going to say, obviously, Training Day or St. Elsewhere. Oh, sure. St. Elsewhere is a TV show, but okay. Well, I know why he did that. He, yeah, wanted, to, he wanted to tell the listeners how old he is. So, hey, kudos to you, buddy. Yeah. Well, I guess you did already let that cat out of the bag when you said you got a colonoscopy this morning. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I, I do. I remember him all the way back to St. Elsewhere. And I remember liking him even back then. And I thought, this guy, I hope he goes on to do movies. <laughs> There's John in the sixth grade, seventh grade, because you're a few years older than I am, <laughs> saying, I hope that guy goes on to great things. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Him and Howie Mandel. Uh, who else? Oh, Mark Harmon was on that. Mm-hmm. Did you remember Mark Harmon oh, on yeah. it? And we did Summer School. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. What, now I got to do a Howie Mandel movie? No, we don't. Is he in any movies? Oh, yeah. Oh, he's yeah. In. Oh, I, calm down there, <laughs> tough guy. Calm down. Wow. That struck a nerve. And, and, I, and I'm assuming it's Little Monsters. Exactly. Okay, just making sure. Let's talk a minute about John Goodman. Let's talk a couple minutes about John Goodman. How good is he in this? So good. This is one of those roles like I mean they wrote the role for him for he he is Jonesy the whole idea of that character was based on John Goodman and he delivered. There are roles that John Goodman's done throughout time uh and this is one of them that jumps out at me always. I mean he he's done uh, the one with Eddie Murphy that they played the uh where he was a senator. I can't remember the name of that one. The distinguished gentleman is that what it was called? It was a con- yeah. And then there was a uh, King Ralph. King Ralph, but he was also in uh, was it Bruce Almighty? Evan Not Almighty. Evan, Evan Almighty. But this is the role I thought that was really a, a big one for him. He originally turned it down. Did he? Yep. And then they hired somebody else, and they started, but they had to get the uh, they had to get his schedule ironed out, and it took probably three weeks, and eventually it, they were stuck and. They needed to find somebody else because they couldn't get the scheduling to work out. And so one of the producers says, I've got a really good friend that's a really good friend of John Goodman. And so let's see if we can talk to him again. And so they end up flying over to London to talk to him. And they go out to dinner. And then by the time they left, he's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. That's so awesome. And it was shoehorned in so tightly with his schedule that he started right after the last production was done and then he had no time and then right after this he's off to the big lebowski that's awesome oh yeah the big lebowski what i meant to say when we were talking about denzel is did you know he turned down seven Mm -mm. yeah he turned down to be in david fincher's seven he was going to play the brad pitt role and he regretted it so much that when fallen came around he jumped on it he thought it was going to be his seven did you know who originally they were going to cast in place of Denzel? Um, who? Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were thinking it was going to be an Arnold vehicle. Yeah, but uh, a year later, Arnold does what? Anybody? Anybody? True Lies? Uh, no. Terminator? That was back in the 80s. <laughs> I love you both. Uh, end of Days. End of Days. I Which actually, is a supernatural cop thriller. That gets a lot of... Bad lip service, but I actually didn't mind that movie. You know why it gets bad lip service, bud? Because it's a bad movie. Because it's a bad movie. So, 
I didn't mind it. But then again, I like the actress in that one. Oh, my. Uh, Listeners, end of days. That way, John and I can have a discussion about it. So, Donald Sutherland. Great. Huge name. Getting him in this movie. Uh, Obviously, he didn't have a huge role in it. He appears in just little bits and pieces here and there. But again, he's another guy that always delivers. Oh, absolutely. I thought he was great as the lieutenant. I thought he delivered very well. James Gandolfini. Rest in peace. He Tony Tony that. Soprano before he's Tony Soprano. He played a great dick in this movie. He played such a great character. I I agree. And uh, I mean detective, not like dick dick, but yeah. Well, it could be the same <laughs> thing, buddy. Um, yeah, he he was really good in this. Mm-hmm. He and Denzel Washington did share another on screen. Uh, Crimson Tide. He played this trigger happy uh, second executive officer that was uh, with uh, he was sided with the captain. Gene Hackman's character. Yeah. Yeah. Someone we have to mention, obviously, is, and Professor, correct me if I'm wrong in the pronunciation, Elos. Elios. Elios. Coteas. Coteas. I thought he stole his scenes. He did such a fantastic job of delivering this kind of crazy, psychotic, possessed guy. Uh, From what I've read about it, uh, that was some of the first scenes that they filmed. And he did such a fantastic job that the director then made all the people who were going to be possessed by Azazel watch it so they could try to act like him. Uh, he learns Aramaic. Mm-hmm. I mean, he learned it. He, he talked to a guy and before they started filming, and he gets into character. And I agree with you. I think that he really shines in his five minutes. Yeah. You know what I mean? He was great. Absolutely. And then M. Beth Davids. How did you feel about her role in this movie? I thought it was good. I thought she played the character well, and um, I believed it. I bought it. I, I mean, you, you kind of have to put yourself in her shoes going through what she went through growing up mm-hmm. after you learn everything. I liked having the relationship that Greta has with John. Their relationship with each other is, uh, it, it is... Uh, we watch them grow close, but close in, but in a very uh, genuine way, and not in a romantic way in any way. Which I think, given time, it could have turned romantic, but the way it ends, it doesn't matter because it's real, and they really do care about each other. And I think that's yeah, it was really well played. For me, I thought she did a good job, but I felt like the other people around her just outshined her it made her performance look a little bit less to me yeah interesting take here's some interesting notes i thought uh the character john hobbs i guess he was based off of two philosophers from the 17th century thomas hobbs and john locke hobbs generally thought that men were evil and needed constraints on society to make them better locke on the other hand thought that men are thinking rational creatures capable of peaceful coexistence. So you can kind of see those two uh, philosophers in this character of John Hobbes. Could you see that? Well, I mean, I could see what kind of character that I thought John Hobbes was, but I didn't know he was named after philosophizers. So, I mean, I guess. Yeah, because I guess if you think about it, almost like a cop, you go into the mind of someone who's a hardened police detective cop that, you know, part of them thinking that, all people are evil and just need to be punished. Well, the other hot thought, you know, that they have is that they're rational and maybe I can help them. And so they probably struggle with that inner turmoil all the time. Oh, I'm sure they do. But I think 
Hobbes comes across as a, like a, a genuine good guy. And because of that, he's he just really conveys a a character that is not morally corrupt and this and and the uh the dignity and and the the genuineness of him is is imperative to have in this story arc since azuzel is unable to get into him through the shake through you know through the touch Mm -hmm. right (sighs) is it trivia time why yes don it would be trivia time In our continuing pursuit to crown a master of movie trivia, I've prepared a series of questions related to today's movie. Please wait until I finish each question before answering. How many notches in Hobbes' belt at the beginning of the movie? Seven. Fuck if I know. They say he has eight notches in his belt. That was one off. Robert Milano named Cop of the Year of what year? 1965. Very good. I'm going to give it to Don because he answered first. He started first. How did Robert Milano die? Gunshot wound to the head. I'll take that or suicide. What brand of beer does Hobbs order at the bar? Budweiser. In the beginning of the movie, what was the name, first and last, of the man being executed? John Reese. Edgar Reese. Edgar Reese. Edgar Reese goes to the professor. Fuck. What class does Greta Milano teach at the university? Theological history. I'm not sure. Theology. I'll give it to you. Bam! That's a total guess. And for the final question. Thank God. What book slash chapter slash verse does a Zazel clue point to? It's 1812 and... Revelation? It does. It is Revelation. It's Revelation 18.2. Oh. So, so you close. both were close. I'll give you both a half a point for that. Oh, gee, thanks, buddy. So according to my information, I believe the professor won that one. So we have a tie. Congratulations, you guys. Thanks. Yeah. Philadelphia police detective John Hobbs visits serial killer Edgar Reese, whom he helped capture on death row. Reese is in high spirits and, during conversation, grabs Hobbs' hand and delivers a spiteful monologue in an unknown language, assumed to be gibberish, but later identified as Aramaic. As he is executed, Reese mocks the spectators and sings, Time is on my side by the Rolling Stones. Hobbs and his partner Jonesy investigate a string of new murders reminiscent of Reese's style, which they assume is by a copycat killer. Following hints given by Reese and the copycat killer, Hobbs tracks down a woman named Greta Milano. Greta explains that her father, a former detective, killed himself in an isolated cabin after being accused of a series of occult murders similar to the ones Hobbs and Jonesy are investigating. Hobbs visits the Milano family's abandoned lake house. In the basement, he finds several unsettling books about demonic possession. He also discovers the name Azazel written on the wall, obscured under layers of paint and grime. So this movie opens up and we are introduced to Edgar Reese. Well, first we're, the movie opens up with the narration uh, from oh, that's right. who we assume is Denzel Washington's character Hobbes. Um, what did you guys think of the way it opens up with that narration? 
I thought it was fun. I wasn't I wasn't paying any attention to that once the movie got going and it wasn't until, you know, the whiplash at the end of the movie. Oh yeah. And that's kind of what it was meant for, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a real quick intro, and he says, uh, I want to tell you about the time I almost died. Yeah, because yeah. it's, it's, it's the screw job. It's basically you think it's one thing, and then you find out in the very end of the movie, completely not what you thought. Yeah. Uh, but it also seems to me, and I'm going to jump right in with it, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. And then we are introduced to Edgar Reese. And he is on his way, or he's on death row, and, death he, row. Wants, and mm-hmm. he wants to talk to Hobbs. And so we're introduced to Hobbs in a proper way. And Reese, what did you guys think of this whole interaction? I thought it was curious that we had the uh, film crew in there, but you know it, they had to be in there so that way we could have something to analyze a little later. But he plays a really good unhinged guy that's, that's just way too creepy. Yeah. Yeah, he did a great job. Yeah. I wish I could go back and remember how my reactions were the first time I saw this movie, because professor, I think you hit it earlier when you said you think this movie starts off just as a cop movie. And then it converts. Was it, I don't know if it was you Don or professor, but then it kind of turns into that supernatural effect later on. So in this beginning, you're thinking, Oh, well, this is just a crazy guy who's overly happy and excited. The fact that he's just about to be killed. Yeah. And then the way he played it and the mumbling, you kind of get, oh, he's mumbling something in gibberish. Maybe he is possessed. Maybe we don't know. If you knew anything about the movie, you got to figure this this is where the demon has to be coming in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think anybody the first time they see this, they're thinking demon. No, my first thought. Why not? I mean, it's in the previews. Well, my first thought probably was he dies because this was based off of actually another movie. My thought was he dies and then he goes on to possess other people because there was a new, another movie that came out before this that they drew a lot from that was that exact storyline. A guy is basically executed right in the beginning of the movie and he goes on to possess people. We get to the execution scene and, you know, after he has the conversation with Denzel and then he's executed. Right, and then we get to see the point of view of the demon, the like demon vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and then we get that overhead look, and it makes itself immediately aware of what's going on with this. Right, and you know, for being an effect in 1998, I think it kind of, I think it still holds up. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still kind of creepy looking, and the uh, paired with the music that they use, I thought the uh, the representation of the demon through this vision. Uh, I thought they did really well. So with the demon vision, the effect of the film that they used for that, the the fun thing about that is it, it comes from a technique that was being used over in Europe for fashion shoots a little bit. And they said, hey, man, maybe we should try to get that for us. And so when they got it rolling and they started shooting it, they had realized that nobody knew how to develop the film. Oh, wow. And so nobody was willing to take a chance at developing the film and for a couple of weeks everybody was freaking out because it's like what are we supposed to do for the demon vision if this doesn't work out and it turns out they ended up getting a a small little company that that took it and developed it and it worked right yeah and it fucking paid off absolutely one of the fun things about you know obviously having seen this movie before and kind of knowing what to expect is being able to watch for the little things and I kind of appreciated this go around watching Reese as he was, you know, 
being set up for his execution, did you notice he kind of looked around and almost looked like he was trying to decide who he was going to take next? Yeah, I mean, very much could have been taken that way. Yeah, that and the other little things, like when he touched Denzel's hand during their whole confrontation, uh, he was kind of surprised that he couldn't possess him. Yeah, that one I noticed. Well, he didn't touch his hand, but what's so great Molested about it, it? No, what's what was so great about that was that um, the hand is just thrust into the frame from left frame. It's just all of a sudden it's out there, bold immediately, and then he chooses to shake his hand, and it's a firm handshake. And they give a good handshake after that. And so, yeah, it's like, hmm. And that is where you, you know, you start to think he's a little unhinged here for sure because of the way he's shaking his hand. Right. But I think he is also kind of surprised for a half a second that he's not transferring. And, mm-hmm. and then after that, that's when the, uh, the, the other language st- starts kicking in. Right. Because he's kind of pissed now. So after uh, Azazel uh, floats around, we finally come down to somebody, and then we are right up to their face. And then it is inferred to us, Azazel is now inside this new person. Right. They go to the bar afterwards. We have Hobbs showing up, and Lou is already there with a bunch of imported beer on the table, and Jonesy is there also. And we get this little dialogue that Lou and Hobbs go back and forth on for a little bit, where, where Lou is asking him, do you like cream? Right. And I thought that this was a good little tidbit where we are where we the audience are shown that Hobbs is a good police officer and he's not necessarily saying that anybody else is a bad police officer because he says 99% and then you know Jonesy corrects him 995 yeah 0.5%. You know these officers they do their job and they do it well and if somebody is doing a little something on the side I don't want to hear about it, and I have nothing to do with it. Right. Well, here's my question, and I and I kind of tried to re- rewatch this scene a little bit. When they talk about the 99%, the 99.5, are they saying 99% of all officers are good, or are they saying all officers are 99% good? So there's like a you know a, between a one and a five percent ch- or chance that they're not a hun- you know perfect. They're not perfect officers. I, I took it as 99.5% of officers all do their job, and, which is... And they don't take bribes on the side. Which is... No, I didn't take that at all. I didn't take it at that. See, I took it as these officers, 99.5% of them don't take bribes, and they're not looking to make a little extra cash on the side. Oh, I got well, the impression, go. and I thought this is the way they were setting it up, was that 995 or each officer is 99.5 uncorruptible, that there is that little bit of them, and that's what lets Azazel in, is that little bit of corruption in each person. And Greta kind of brings up something later that basically says he couldn't get into you because you were uncorruptible. You were that 100%, basically, is what I thought what they were. She was referring to Hobbes as, and that's why Azazel couldn't get into him, because he was morally perfect, whereas everybody else is only either 99 or 99.5% uncorruptible. After this, uh, we go out to the city street and we see the corrections officer driving in his convertible car. And and so now we're going to follow Azazel a little bit. And what we are revealed with this is how Azazel can jump around from person to person so easily by just any type of a casual touch. Right. 
so after the jump around, then we finally settle on Charles, and he has that sandwich that he's talking to the guy, and he and he and he just blows him off. I quit. Yeah, and so now he is with Charles. The next scene that we have that follows is we have Hobbs sleeping in bed, and he gets a phone call in the, in the middle of the night. He picks it up. Very reminiscent to what Reese used to do to him. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so at this point, I had to ask myself. Was the was Azazel looking for the most creepy guy he could find? Because in this jump sequence, he jumps around to, you know, people, I guess. But when the guy he ends up with looks like a serial fucking killer. You know, it's a curious thought why Azazel chooses to jump the way that the character does. And there is something to be said about that. And by the time we reflect after the movie is over with, that's a curious thought to think about is why does Azazel land where Azazel does? And why does he sometimes jump so quickly? I thought it was funny. He ends up looking like a guy who looks like a fucking serial killer. I just assumed it was, he bounced around until he found the perfect person who could be his best tool, who had the best connections to what he wanted to do. And this guy was a nobody that nobody looked at. You know, he worked at this job that he just quit. So nobody was going to come looking for him. And he wouldn't have to show up to work or anything like a prison person. People might ask questions why he doesn't show up to work. So I just assumed he just picked what he felt like was the perfect vessel to continue his murders. Yeah, maybe. The next scene we have is Charles again. And he's preparing himself a little bit of breakfast. Bowl of cereal, puts a little bit of sugar on his cereal. Starts eating his cereal, and then he's brushing his teeth. Oh, there's a body in the tub. Did any of this at any time remind you of Seven? A little bit. little bit, right? Yeah. Did it take you out? No. It did me. A little bit. Just a little. It sucks to be me, right? Basically, we are set up to learn that there's most likely a copycat killer out there. Yeah, and they don't necessarily know that it's a copycat killer yet, but what makes them very, very perplexed is they they have stumbled across something that Reese said to Hobbes when he was in the prison cell a week ago. The the joke that he tells. The riddle. The riddle. Yeah. It's on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. What's between Lyons and Spakowski? So back at the station, we have Lou. He recognizes that name Spakowski. And they end up going down to the basement, and that's where they find the old placard of the uh, officer of the year. And we see lions, and then there's a there's a gap at 1965, and then there's Spakowski. And so, what the hell? And I found that to be a very perplexing part of the story. So, Zazel does this bit where he's in the prison cell about to be executed but somehow he knows about the placard and that gap so i feel like he's already setting himself up for hobbs like he before he got into the prisons before he's he's executed he is already determined to send hobbs on this little wild goose chase so he had to know that before he shook his hands so he left the cell got himself into the police station, and then from there he uh, saw the placard, right, and then gets himself back to the prison, back into, the, uh, into, the, into, his, into his prison cell so he could shake his hand and give him that riddle. Well, 
So Azazel's been around for a hundred years. And thousands. thousands, thousands of years. Okay. I stand corrected. Excuse the hell out of me. And uh he knew Milano was onto him. And this is back in nineteen sixty five. So Azazel didn't have to go anywhere, really, because from 1965 until he's captured in, in Edgar Reese, he already has that information. And I'm sure in between that time, he's gone to the station, he saw the placard, this, that, and the other, because from 65 to when Reese gets executed, that's a long fucking time. Yeah. You know what I mean? I kind of felt like, and the more we learn about Milano, that really what this was is Reese sending Hobbs on a journey to basically learn what Reese was about to do to him, you know, what Azazel was going to do to him. He was basically going to try to ruin Hobbs' life the exact way he ruined Milano's up until the point where he would go to take his own life. You know, I never thought about it that way, but that makes sense. Yeah, he was right? just uh, Azazel, yeah. yeah, Azazel was just wants to ruin his life. Mm-hmm. And there is no other motive than Azazel just being a demon and trying to bring down mankind one person at a time. What happens now is that we figure out who Robert Milano is, and he brings it back to his boss, Stanton. And Stanton says, oh, yeah, I knew this guy. But, you know, whatever it is you find, leave it alone. Right. I don't want to hear about it. And this is where we get a little bit of shade, I feel like, in Lieutenant Stanton. is like, is he somebody that we should be trusting or not? Because he's telling because he's telling him about the Milano thing, whatever it is you find, leave it alone. I don't want to hear about it. Nobody wants to hear about it. Well, and I also feel like he's also protecting his ass because he even says it, you know, it's not me. It's the guys upstairs there, you know, you got to leave it alone. He's trying to play the good guy because I think he does respect Denzel. And I think that Stanton uh, loves his unit. You know what I mean? I think it's also that they've worked hard to cover up Milano. So he was the cop of the year and a serial killer. So they don't want anything to do with him because they don't want that information getting back out and people coming back and looking at the department that way. Right. So the uppers are coming down on Stanton and saying, shut this down. We also have the Hobbs and Jonesy viewing the videotape and they get to listen to him go on and they're able to take the videotape and they're going to run down what type of language it is that he's speaking. Right. And as soon as, as soon as we uh, hear this little bit where he, I want Hobbs to see this. Right. You know, cause he's specifically talking to Hobbs through the videotape now. And so I, I thought that, Man, this is going to get really twisted. And this is where you can start to feel a little bit more of that seven feeling. But I didn't feel it, and I haven't felt it before. Yeah. But I, I understand your angle of approach on that. From here, we're introduced to Greta, and he, Greta Milano. And he, and so Hobbs introduces himself, and he just wants to find out a little bit if she's willing to talk a little bit about it, about what happened with her dad. Right. And so they have the conversation and she is even like, drop this, you know, walk away. And, you know, Hobbs is like, I can't. Um, but I do like how the conversation ends. But the interesting thing that happens before that is she asks, did Reese like to sing? And then she asks at the execution, did he try to touch you in any way? And Denzel's like, yeah, as a matter of fact, he did. So she goes ahead and says, I will agree to speak to you, but only if it stays between us and you don't tell anybody else. She confesses that she thinks that her father got framed and he went up to a cabin in the mountains and she knows that what happened up there 
regardless of what happened up there, she knows that her father is innocent. And he's like, how do you know that? She goes, I just know it. Right. Right. Here's a question for both of you. And the whole idea that Milano went up to the cabin, the father went up to the cabin and killed himself. Do you think he was also trying to trap Azazel in a similar way? Or do you think he figured his life was over and actually did go up there to commit suicide? I took it as he was trying to do what Denzel did. That's I what thought, I, that's how I took it. I as thought well. he was trying to get rid of him. Yeah. And then she asks at the end, you know, the whole bit about God. After they part ways, we get this Hobbes dialogue that he does, you know, for us, the audience. And it's it's during this dialogue that it made me think that this is this is Hobbes. Because what he says is, sometimes I think the basic job that human beings have is just to figure out what the hell is going on. Example, Greta Milano. Now, what was she hiding? What was she so scared of? And the question about God, what the hell is that all about? And to me, it sounds a lot like that that is Hobbes talking and not the other way around. I think that's what happens in this movie. I've been trying to dissect it a bit. I think the very first narration, the very last narration is Reese or is Azazel. Everything that happens in the middle, I think is Hobbes narrating. I would too, but the cadence that he narrates in mm-hmm. isn't Hobbes's cadence, even this bit. And I kept thinking to myself, if it's Azazel, then this dialogue really doesn't make any sense at this moment. Yeah. And it bothers me to think that he's jumping in and out of character narration. So this internal dialogue that we get to hear, ultimately, it does need to be Azazel all the way through because the story begins and ends with him. Now, let me tell you the story. Now, let me tell you the story about how I almost died. And so how far back should I go? No, no, no. I can't go all the way back there. Right. I, let's just pick a, some random. We'll just pick some spot. And uh, let's just go Edgar Reese. And the story begins. Right. And maybe the reason why we have these bits of dialogue in the middle like this, where it's misleading to us, the viewing audience, is because we have Azazel access to everything in the memory core of that person. And with that, they see the things that they remember, the things that they said. And with that, that is why he is able to ask those questions. That's an excellent point. Yeah. So, yeah, and like I said, I, I think it's Azazel throughout the whole thing. It's it's his story to us. It really is. Yeah. It's not Hobbes' story. So we learn that Denzel uh, has a brother and a nephew, what did you guys think of the brother and the nephew? Well, I was struggling a little bit. Was the brother like a little bit touched in the head or a little bit iffy, like something was off on him? <laughs> yes. Wow. I don't right. know how to describe it because he seemed normal. He just seemed like a little, no, almost he was a little bit like me, a little bit geeky. N- no, he was slow. Was he slow? Yeah. That's what I thought as well. And yeah. that was his son, Sam. Yes. And, that, and mm-hmm. Johnny Denzel's character... Uh, is helping raise Sam. Did you catch the quick inference that Hobbs's wife left him because of him taking care of his brother and Sam? Oh, absolutely. What did you think of Sam and Art? I thought they were great. Yeah, Sam, he was a delightful little character. Yeah, and uh, Art, I thought it was very touching how uh, the brothers looked out for each other, mm-hmm. um, particularly Denzel. And, you know, he was always... Uh, telling, uh, asking him, like, are you mad at me, Johnny? Or, or things like that. And, you know, Denzel's character was very patient, and you could tell that he loved his brother more than anything. In the meantime, we also get to see Charles 
executed, well, not necessarily executed, but we see uh, Azazel clearing up uh, this loose end of Charles, and he gets murdered, and then the breakfast table is going to be set up the same way. We don't see that yet, but we see we see Charles going down. And it's at this part that Hobbs gets another call, and it's another clue, yeah. and they have to go check it out. And this is where Goodman's totally... It's a fucking copycat, right? There is no other explanation, and they keep running down the possible uh, the possible culprits, right? It's a cop. It's someone on the inside. It's this. It's that. It's that. And they're just kind of uh, racking their brains about it. And then Hobbs gets another phone call. Hey, pal, need another clue? So after they look at the next crime scene, and it's an identical setup, um, Hobbs has got it in his head that there's got to be something to this Reese connection, and Reese has led him to Milano, so Reese decides he's going to drive up to the country and check out this property himself. Yeah. What did you guys think of this whole going up to the property bit? Well, like, I, I loved where the, I loved how it was right on a lake, and it was a cabin and all that, until you got into the cabin, and it reminded me then, oh, we're at Evil Dead. Yeah, he's gonna yeah. Have to, he's gonna find the Necronomicon. Yeah, it, re- it kind of reminded me of the Evil Dead cabin. Creep- that is for sure. Creepy as fuck. Yeah, the no no front door, just the screen door. Yeah, and he just walks in, holes on the roof, and he's looking around, and he goes downstairs. I like the kitchen bit where he moves some of the leaves away, and he sees, oh, there's the body. Oh yeah, yeah, it's the the outline of it. Yeah, yeah, it's like a hmm. yeah. And so he goes downstairs, he looks around, and um, when he goes downstairs, this is another piece of dialogue that we get from Hobbs, misleading us. There are moments at which mark your life, moments when you realize nothing will ever be the same and time is divided into two parts, before this and after this. Sometimes you can feel such a moment coming. That's the test, or so I tell myself. I tell myself that at times like that, strong people keep moving forward anyway, no matter what they're going to find. Yeah, and watching it this time, I'm imagining Azazel saying it. And I'm thinking, it makes sense. Right. It does. It does kind of fit. So, I mean, great job. Great job from the writers. Well, this is where he uncovers. I don't know if it was like a mirror or something that's been painted over that. Then he clears and he finds the name Azazel. I love the way they fa- he found it, though. He found it by finding an old picture that this old picture shows the basement and he flips it over and it says, look. Right. It's just like, oh, Oh, and the moment before when the when the the, the roof comes down collapses. Yeah, did, did you happen to read about why that is in the movie? Mm-hmm. Oh yes, because during the test screening of this film, they had this scene, and the collapsing of the ceiling wasn't in it. And one of the patrons got up to go to the bathroom, and as he was leaving, the door slammed exactly at the part where. Uh, where he finds a book or whatever and the audience jumped and the producers were like, well, fuck we, now we need a jump scare. Because so, the, and they put it in there because the tension is so high right there. Yeah. You're, you know, it's creepy as fuck. Right. And it's like, what are you doing up here in the middle of nowhere creeping around where nobody's going to find you if something bad happens. Do you jump when you watched it? The first time I'm sure I did. No, I meant this last time. No. Did you? I did not jump. I totally did. Cause I totally forgot it was there. Mm. So I always love movies that base, the, you know, their characters or history on actual history, actual lore, actual mythology. So when I heard the name Azazel, I wanted to find out more about this character and about its lore. And I found out some fascinating things about it. Uh, Azazel 
uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but he is in the Bible as a fallen angel. And he started out as one of God's chosen angels, and he was a member of what was called the Watchers. They were sent down to earth to watch humanity and to help guide them. But eventually they got jealous of humanity and started to try to corrupt humanity to the point where God basically cast them out and basically caused them not to have any specific form. So here's why Azazel now has to take the form of others because he's been cast out and ha- doesn't have a form for himself. In he appears that's basically where he appears in most of the mythologies. That's where he starts. In the Hebrew tradition, Azazel is actually mentioned in the Bible, specifically Leviticus and in the Old Testament, where it's believed, I I don't know if you guys are familiar with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Well, in that, that's where Jews will go ahead and cast off everything bad that they've done for the year. You basically atone for everything you've done. It's like going to confession, except we do it once a year. In the Old Old Testament, in that idea, was they used to put a goat in, and they would basically put all of their bad things, they can think of all the bad mojo, and they'd cast it off into the goat and then send the goat off into the woods. And the idea was this goat was being sent to Azazel, who would then basically either do something, but it was called a scapegoat. And he would do something with the goat that would take away all of the sins of the Jews. Now, in other texts, he's actually portrayed um, in the book of Enoch, which I'm not as familiar with, um, in that he was basically the one who taught humans various sinful practices and was imprisoned for his actions. So there's this whole history of him that I thought was just fascinating that explains that, you know, why he likes to watch people, why he likes to interact with people, why he likes to jump around in people is because of all this origin stuff. So they kind of built it off that interesting character. Hobbs asks Greta about the name, but she strongly urges him to drop the case to protect the lives of himself and his loved ones. She reconsiders after a terrifying encounter with Azazel, who confronts her in the guise of several strangers on the street and attempts to possess her. Seeking sanctuary in a church, Greta explains to Hobbs that Azazel is a fallen angel who can possess human beings by touch. Hobbs realizes that Azazel, while possessing Edgar Reese, shook his hand before the execution but was not able to possess him. Greta explains that the demon will try to ruin his life and warns him of Azazel's inevitable victory. Azazel visits Hobbes at his precinct, possesses his friend Lou, and taunts him. Azazel moves to person to person singing, Time is on my side, after each transfer. Hobbes asks Lou and several of the others why they were singing that song, but they have no recollection. Hobbes runs outside and calls out to Azazel in Aramaic, The demon, now moving among people in the street, praises Hobbes for his cleverness. Hobbes says that he knows of Azazel's true identity. The demon threatens him and disappears. So Hobbes and Greta, they're talking and they are uh, comparing notes. And in the end, she tells him, walk away. And and they they have an exchange that goes back and forth a little bit, but... I think that, you know, Hobbes, he is now very, very clearly confused and conflicted. When he gets back to the station, Stanton tells Hobbes those phone calls were to your place. And why would those phone calls from the murder scene go to your place? 
Right. And he says, well, because we have a copycat. Yeah, because I wouldn't be calling myself. Right. And, you know. Um, this is, I think, where also the first indication uh, that the lieutenant gives that they're starting to look at him. Azazel's trying to slowly turn the tables on Hobbs, for sure. Yeah. And then we are given the translation to the Aramaic that he said. And, and then we have that big, long list of things that how he's going to be fucked over. You know, I will, I will get you left and right, up and down type of thing. Right. And if that doesn't work, I have other ways. Right. Right. And now he's in the precinct. Azazel's in the precinct. Well, right before that was a big thing. And I don't think I even noticed this in the first movie. And I love the fact that Azazel calls it out in his end narration saying, you know, you forgot something, which was the cat. We see a cat walking up to the precinct, rub against, I think it's Lou or one of them, and possess him and pass off. So Azazel was in that cat, that orange cat, uh, in the scene, which is basically a hint to the end of how he could survive. Because they say right there, it doesn't have to be people. It can also be animals that he can possess. Well, it's more prominently displayed when we have Hobbs at home and he's watching the video at home. And there's a window that right next to him where it shows this orange cat watching him watch the video. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah. So now it's the next day and we watch the cat rub on a guy as he's walking into the police precinct. Yes. And this isn't the this wasn't the first time you saw the cat. The cat's up at the cabin at the very first. Oh, is it? Too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It. Well, I don't know. If, I don't think it's a Zazel, but there is a cat. That's up there. I don't remember that, but that's it. It ran right. It it runs underneath the cabin. So yeah, when when Hobbs first pulls up, and it's this lovely fall day, and he's checking out the place. When the car is put into park, we watch this cat run across, and it's like an oil tank outside the house, and the cat runs underneath the oil tank. Yes. Yeah. But fast forward back to the police precinct, and so now we we have this moment, and I got to say that it is. A lovely moment. And it's so well done. Uh, it starts with Lou, right? He starts singing the Rolling Stones song. And Denzel's kind of watching it. And I love the way they track with Denzel as it goes from person to person. And just the the look of bewilderment just gets greater and greater. And Denzel's like, what the fuck is going on? I love the way that it starts because it, it, it's Lou that starts. And he's like, come here. Right. Come here. Time is on my side. Oh, so good. Well, the interesting thing I thought, and you can see it actually happening, which is really cool in this, is that we're starting to see uh, Hobbs go from a disbeliever to believing it. Absolutely. Because he even, you know, you know when, when it passes from Lou to someone else, he's like, why were you singing that song? And it's like, what song? I wasn't singing any song. The right. other guys were, but I wasn't. Right. And, and, and it... And it's not until it gets to like the third or fourth person, the patrolman, and he's like, "Why were you singing that?" You're right. And then Mike, it, Mike, what? Why were you singing that? I wasn't singing. Yeah. And then it goes outside, and then Azazel makes it outside, and Hobbs follows him, and it, Azazel gets to that couple. And I thought at first, oh, it's it's the elderly man. He's right before he's going outside. He gives the smirk and then he walks outside. Yes. And when they get outside, I'm assuming that the elderly man is going to turn around and give the first line. Exactly. But it's the wife. It's the wife. It, it's really good. Did you know? Creepy uh, as fuck. How they choreographed this whole thing? 
I'm going to say very carefully. They actually used dancers so that it would look like a dance as it passed each person. Oh, I believe it. And that way, as they passed each person, they you know all of a sudden they went into Reese's kind of moves and you know his stride and motions and facial expressions, so that they figured dancers could do it best. Yeah, yeah, it, and it's such a wonderful little twist that it you know you're thinking it's the old man, but it's the wife that turns around and she's like, Syrian, Syrian Aramaic, how clever. And then it's the husband all of a sudden. If you know, you should never tell. And then he touches someone else. And then it's that big guy and he walks right next to him. Beware of my wrath. Yeah. And then touch, touch, touch. Nine people are touched outside. And he is just gobsmacked, slack jawed. And just right in the middle, just watching this go down. So good. I think this is my second favorite touch scene oh yeah my, ne- my next one's coming up yeah so would it be at this point that you would basically say okay i'm fuck i'm out or would you consider could, well can you can you he already the demon already knows who you are and is determined to fuck with you do you think if you just said all right demon you win do you think he'd just let you live i think at this point i would realize he's on his way to winning and i have to basically halt everything and basically like you know basically head to that cabin basically Prepare for the end game because you're fucked at this point. You cannot catch him as he bounces around in a busy city. Well, A, you can't catch him. Yeah. Right? So what the fuck do you do? What the fuck do you do? I would immediately run to Greta and say, okay, let's start planning how to catch this guy. Which is exactly, well, almost what happens because now Hobbs, he's like, what the fuck is going on here? He's starting to believe. Yeah. And so the two, they get together and they talk. And then this is where Hobbs, the detective, is grappling with his police work in conjunction with trying to accept the supernatural. And then as she leaves, what do you think of the chase scene for her? Probably my favorite. That's my favorite touch scene. Yeah. That's what I was talking about. But another interesting thing that is revealed, which gives us a little bit of hope, is talking about how somebody, don't know who, maybe her, maybe him, the chosen a chosen person might be able to kill the demon and so it's coming to light that potentially she has been trying to train herself for this job but possibly maybe the reason why azazel did not go into hobbs when he touched hobbs is that maybe maybe hobbs could be one of these people that could be a slayer for the demon so then we have the scene where Greta's walking off, and she starts getting chased by Azazel. We get the demon vision. And oh, so good. I kept thinking, oh, she's fucked at this point. I mean, How do you get away from that? Right? Just the it, whole it, thing it, of the touches as it's getting closer and closer. I mean, and it, it had to be like somebody bumps into someone, and she, she gets away, right? But, oh, that was so good. Yeah. And so what does she do? Naturally, what I think anyone would do in that moment, go to church. Well, then, We don't know if Azazel can go in there or not yet, but that's a good place to start. I want to go back to that chase because I think that that's my favorite part of the movie. I found that to be the most terrifying moment of the movie, and it freaked me out the first time I saw it, thinking, God, what would I do if I was being chased by somebody like that? Because all they have to do is just seeing the person in front of them touch, 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 touch. Oh, my God. It freaked me out so bad. Definitely heart-pounding. Great scene. Great scene. I think it's like my second favorite scene of the movie. Wait, you said that the— It's uh, my first favorite chase scene. Oh, okay. It's my second favorite scene. All right. And we haven't got to my favorite scene yet. So next scene, we have Greta sitting in the church, and then that lovely camera shot 
where we are looking at Hobbes entering from the ceiling. Yes. And then the camera swings under come, to come right side up. I just, I thought that that was such a beautiful thing because here's Hobbes throwing everything away. His world is completely upside down at this point. Yep. And he, and he's, he's being very, he, he consoles her and he's like, are you okay? You know, and she's obviously fucking freaking out. She felt like she wasn't ready. Yeah. She's trained all of her life. And when the moment came, she ran. That's right. That's right. And uh, this is where Hobbes is like, we shouldn't be seen together anymore. Cause he asks her, does he know where you live? And she's like, no. And so uh, he says, don't, don't be seen with me. No more contact, blah, blah, blah. And they, you know. Yeah. And they separate. Next scene, we have Stanton telling that Hobbes could be a murder suspect. And Hobbes, he just starts chuckling. He's like, man, this is exactly what happened to Milano. I'm being framed in the same way. He gets back home. The kids are outside. And he goes inside to find that Art has a black eye. Why do you have a black eye? Time is on my side. Yes, it is. To provoke Hobbes, Azazel possesses his nephew Sam and attacks John's intellectually disabled brother Art in their home. He again flees into other people on the street, ending up in a school teacher. As the teacher, Azazel draws a gun and forces Hobbes to shoot his host in front of a group of bystanders. Azazel boasts that if his current host is killed, he can transfer to another host in the surrounding area without needing to touch them. Lieutenant Stanton informs Hobbs that his fingerprints were found at one of the murder scenes and in the light of the bizarre circumstances of the shooting of the teacher has become a suspect for all the murders. Azazel inhabits several of the witnesses and gives false accounts that the shooting was unprovoked, throwing further suspicion on Hobbs. Azazel comes into Hobbs's home and murders his brother while marking Sam. Hobbs takes his nephew to Greta's house Greta explains that if forced out of the host's body, Azazel can only travel for as long as one breath can sustain him, after which he will die. So this is kind of where the, the film's picking up a little bit. He Hobbs gets sent home, and he sees the two kids in the tree, or Sam's in the tree and his buddy's on the, mm-hmm. on the ground. And, um, you know, the first time I saw this, when it's revealed that Sam hit his dad, I really thought that Sam just had anger issues. It wasn't until I watched it last night, I was like, oh, the fucking demon made him do it. Well, when Hobbs was walking by the tree and looked up at Sam, uh, I don't know if, it, you know, my first time seeing this movie, but this time, you know, I didn't remember a whole lot about it. I didn't remember him ever possessing Sam. But when I looked up the tree and saw the way that Sam was looking down at him, I thought, Oh, freaking Azazel is up in him right now. Yeah. I yeah, immediately assumed something was going on with that kid. Yeah, because he gives him a, a, he remembers, right? It's kind of like. It's a big smile. Yeah, as he's walking by and then he says, oh shit. And then he tells, um, you know, Sam comes in and. Go Sam's, inside. Toby's sitting on the hood of his car. Such a good moment. Or a hood of a, a hood of a, a car. Right. Could have been his. Um, but the, but Azazel possesses this kid, right. And starts taunting him. Hey, Hobbs. And it's so good. Stay away from my family. And so, uh, Toby runs off and there's a foot chase. There's a foot chase. And, uh, Toby, he crashes into somebody 
and uh, Azazel starts bouncing around until he ends up into the school teacher. And he immediately goes to a car and gets a gun out and starts shooting. Yeah. Well, yeah. Weird, right? Yeah. I kept thinking, obviously, you know, Azazel must have, you know, pre-planned all of this and gotten a gun and put blanks in it and had it just so happen to be in this car that the teacher would, you know, that he then would lead the teacher to. But, but where would he get a gun with blanks? I thought that it was a weak story point. And the reason why I thought it was a weak story point is because eventually it is revealed that that was not his car. That was a stolen car. And there was a gun inside that Azazel knew about and that the gun had fired blanks. This is a, this is a teacher that has a four-month-old pregnant wife, and he just got a promotion at work or a pay raise. And then that's where Standard says, so much for the death by cop theory. Right. And then we also have the police are in looking at the corpse on the ground and he has something on his chest. It's like, Jesus, you had to get this guy into play at the right place at the right time where he's close to the car that he can get the gun out to make himself get killed by Hobbs. I'm going to go ahead and back that up. And yeah, Azazel did plan this whole fucking thing. Yeah. And I'll just give it to you like this. He's a fucking demon. The The crazy thing with the lettering on the chest, I don't think he pre-planned that he was going to jump into that teacher. I think when he possesses somebody, he's able to add the letter somehow like a tattoo to people because each person that he possessed ended up, you know, when they ended up dead, had those letters on them. And so he wasn't running around with a tattoo gun and tattooing them all or using a marker or anything like that. I think, you know, the fact that he possessed that teacher and then got him killed, you know, death by suicide or by cop, uh, he was able just to, to magically put the letters on him. So right after the, uh, the shooting happens, this is where we get a very, very chilling moment in the story. And that is that, oh my God, we still have Azazel here and he jumps into that gal. And so creepy horrifying yeah and i like she how she says right up to him and i like how she says uh i don't want to stop i'm still having fun <laughs> that's so creepy she starts singing when she starts singing it's yeah. like oh dropping a deuce yep why well, don't you I, just and, and and i like how uh even as azazel says it i'm not that easy to kill hobbs so stop it why and did... and this tells us the audience that you know it doesn't matter if you shoot the host body he can just jump into someone yep. else without touching him. Why don't you just kill me? Well, we already knew this from his ex his execution in the beginning when he floated up and he floated into somebody else. Yeah. So yeah. we knew that, but he never saw that. He probably just assumed he had touched somebody else at the execution. And then so the police come and Stanton says, you know, let's go back to the police station. And they give me your gun. Give me your gun. And Denzel's even like, so I killed somebody so I killed somebody, called myself, went to my house, answered the phone. You know what I mean? And it doesn't make any sense. And uh, Stanton comes back with a really good line, though. Which is? He says, people want the world to make sense. It's just the only way that I can get the world to make sense for me is to arrest you, and I'll have to do it. Right. That That is such a great line. Yep, yep. And so... Uh, we also, this is also where uh, Hobbs and Jonesy has a moment. Of a little philosophical 2 a.m. talk with each other. What I love about Jonesy is he always had Hobbs' back, no matter what. 
and 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 it happens gradually. You know, he's got a couple of lines at the beginning when they're at the bar drinking all the beer, right? He he has a you know, there's just a couple of lines there, and the way that this character is developed is rich. It, it's the way things happen in real life, where you just happen into meet somebody and you strike it off with conversation, and then things just kind of sort of grow the way that they do, and we get this. We get to see the bond that the two have with each other over the arc of the story that these two have a really good, tight history together. The the one thing that bugs me about their history together and about their partnership is at no time does Hobbs bring in Jonesy. Like when he's investigating to find out, you know, the the space between the two names or, you know, the stuff that he's learning in the... He's not bringing... If he had brought Jonesy along for the whole ride... He could have been his witness to say he didn't do any of this. Well, Jonesy is sort of there. You know, he he certainly alludes to it when he says, you know, I feel like somebody's yanking on my dick and it's not me. Right. You know, he alludes to it a couple of times that, you know, things are not what they really appear to be. Right. And I mean, Jonesy's really not pushing either. Mm -hmm. And I think Denzel thinks or I think that Hobbs thinks that he's protecting him in a way because Hobbs still fully doesn't understand what's going on. You know, it's not until these last couple of bits where he knows he's in really deep shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so he probably thought he had a day or so, and maybe he brings Jonesy in. Who knows? Jonesy even says it was a clean shoot, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. Hobbs is like, well, it doesn't make me feel any better. And by the time Hobbs gets home at 2 o'clock in the morning... Um, he has a little phone call with Greta. Right. It's revealed to us, the audience, that the demon can survive for one breath outside of the body or up to 500 cubits or one sixth of a mile. And so now we understand our playing field that we need to make our Azazel get into. So they won't be able to escape. We we need to isolate him. And now Denzel's starting to come up with a plan. Yeah. But in the meantime, he gets a kick in the balls. Oh, yep. Next morning. Oh, so, Sam's watching TV, whatever, and uh, Hobbs finds an open window. Well, he basically says, "Where's Where's your dad? Where's Art? Oh, he slept in." Yeah, and there's an open window. And then he looks in the mirror and he sees C A L written on the mirror. And then from there, oh shit! Well, at when he's talking to Sam, he, he goes, he goes, and he looks at Sam's chest, and he finds that letter Y on Sam's chest. Right. And then after he discovers the letter on Sam, he goes to check on his brother. Do you think, and maybe it's just best we don't know, but do you think that Azazel possessed Sam and had Sam kill Art? Or I was wondering if he possessed Art and had Art kill himself, but it seems more likely that the reason why the, you know, the Y is on there is because he used Sam to kill his father. I didn't even think about because it. Because you notice that little needle was just left on the side of the bed, the poison that he used, which he eventually uses to put in his cigarettes. Didn't think about it. I didn't either. I mean, we really don't need to know. Right. But we all know how John feels about children and how they're little demons anyway. Demon spawn, yeah. And so uh, Hobbs comes in and he finds his brother dead. And I thought it was touching the way that Denzel played that scene. Oh, it was heartbreaking. It It was touching. It was heartbreaking. When Mm -hmm. he goes and he stops himself before he has to go out the door and he's trying to compose himself. I love the way it's shot because he's in the shadow. You can't see what's going on, but you can feel it because that's what Denzel does. You know what I mean? Yeah, and we don't see his face right away. The first shot is, you know, we're looking, um, Art's back is to us and he touches his arm 
and then we get a closer shot, a tighter shot of him touching Art's wrist. And then we see the reaction on on Hobbs's face. The almost the acceptance of, oh yeah. Here it goes, yeah. And yeah. he knows exactly what happened. Yep. And then we hear the phone start to ring. Do you know how many times that phone rang? How many? Nine times. Nine, <laughs> nine times? <laughs> uh, the gift that keeps on giving. Apparently, there is no answering machine. And what 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 is Sam doing? He's just sitting there playing video games. I don't answer the phone. I know. He just kept letting it ring and ring and ring. And so Hobbs answered it, and it's Jonesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, trying to get a gauge on where he's at, what he's doing. Letting him know that Lou is on the way. That's right, because it has now been determined by a bunch of witnesses that Hobbs did shoot first. Yeah, we, we and see, Hobbs is a dick. We see the gal that uh, that was talking to him. Oh, he sh- yeah, he shot first. That's right. That's right. And so uh, Hobbs has to scramble, get Sam ready, tells him that he's still sleeping, and then they take off and go on the run. And we can see that Azazel is watching them flee the house. Right, because he knows. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, we get to a bit where they're on the subway, and uh, he's putting together the puzzle, and he finds the apocalypse message and, and this and the other. And he asks a nun who's on the train, uh, what, the, what does the apocalypse mean to you? And she tells him revelations. I like the bit where they're sitting under the bridge, and Denzel has to tell him about his father. and that uh, Yeah, he needs to tell him something about, I need to tell you something about your dad. And then Sam says, He's not asleep, is he? Yeah, and and it's just it's just one of those moments. Did you hear the story behind the filming of that scene? No. Uh, apparently, after shooting that scene, uh, the production team sent a courier to a lab in New York to have the sound and images processed. On that journey involving two taxi cabs and a two-hour train ride, the courier lost the sound for the scene. So the production team actually took out ads in a newspaper and ran ads on TV and radio trying to get that footage, you know, that sound found and returned to them, even offering a reward. They never found it. So they actually had to go back and use, I believe it was like VHS tape versions of what they had filmed during that and have a sound lab reproduce the sound for that entire scene. Well, there you go. So that scene, that the sound and all that, somewhere still out there. Yeah, I suppose. I wonder if it got delivered like six months later or a year later. They opened it up. What the fuck is this? You have Denzel and the kid, the audio. And so Hobbs decides to take Sam to Greta's. And uh, Hobbs has a plan. And he has to leave Sam there for a while and but I, he, he knows it's for good. Yeah, and I like the dialogue, right? I like the dialogue he has with Sam, and I like what Sam says. He says, "I'm going to go to sleep, and when I wake up, tomorrow's going to be every tomorrow's going to be just like it was, and everything will be back the way that it was." Right. And then he goes to leave Greta. I love that she gives him a thermos. Do you notice that the coffee, a thermos of coffee? I thought that was sweet. Yeah. And when uh, he looks at her and he says, "You know what this means, right?" And she says, "I'm ready." Uh, she was. She meant that she was ready to take care of Sam. Which I thought was an interesting point from earlier on in the movie. She said that she had purposely cut out everyone out of her life because she didn't want to have any connections because she knew, he, you know, first Eventually, of all, yeah. Azazel would play off, one, the connections, and two, 
she might lose someone or put them in danger. Yet now she's ready to bring someone into her life. I thought it was kind of interesting how quickly, you know, they haven't known each other that long, but she's ready to take on this responsibility. Hey, man, if, if you if two people are experiencing a demon at the same time, that's enough bonding. Yeah. yeah you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. that shit's going to bring you close real quick. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. At least I would think. And Hobbs tells her that you got to go someplace and you can't tell me where you're going. And so, yeah, it, it's, and, and I, I like their goodbye. It's not necessarily a tearful goodbye. It's a brave goodbye, but it's a heartfelt goodbye. Because you know it's final. Yeah. Somehow in your gut. You're rooting for Denzel, but in your heart you kind of know that it's, that's it. I kind of hoped that this scene, and it, it never happened. I don't know if it was ever planned to happen, but I was kind of hoping that this would set up for a sequel, knowing how the movie ends, that Greta trains Sam, and Sam grows up to be the one to take on Azazel. Hobbs goes to the Milano cabin and calls Jonesy, knowing he will trace the call. Stanton and Jonesy arrive to arrest Hobbs. However, Jonesy kills Stanton, revealing himself to be possessed. Azazel prepares to shoot himself, which will allow him to possess Hobbs, the only other person around for miles. Hobbs wrestles Jonesy for his gun, and Jonesy is fatally wounded. Hobbs smokes a cigarette, which he explains has been laced with the same poison Azazel used to kill his brother, which will leave Azazel stranded in the wilderness without a host. Hobbs taunts him and kills Jonesy. Azazel possesses Hobbs, frantically attempts to flee, and succumbs to the poison. Azazel in a voiceover, mocks the audience for believing that he has lost, and a possessed cat emerges from beneath the cabin and heads back to civilization. Roll credits. We have Hobbs and Jonesy talking to each other on the phone, like, man, what's going on? And he's, you know, he's, he's driving out to the country, and we see that Stanton and Lou are listening in. It's like, ah! So... You know, good on them for for deducing and figuring out where they're going to eventually have to come find Hobbs. Sure. And he's dropping hints on the call, too. I'm going out, you know, going for a long drive up to the lake and everything. Looking out the window by the water. So it's obvious he's trying to set somebody up. He knows that that a cop is going to come looking for him. Right. And when the cops get there. I want to talk about before they get there. Because what we have here, when he pulls up to the house, we have the... We have the Hobbes dialogue start up again. We have this uh, misdirection that is given to us, the audience, as Hobbes is narrating to us. Hobbes versus Azazel. I thought I had him. He thought he had me too. And so now, you know, we're thinking, okay, this is Hobbes talking to us, the audience, but it's not. It's Azazel. And and, and I, I just thought it was a really good misdirection, you know, to pull the, the rug out from underneath us because Hobbes has a plan and, you know, we're, we, the audience, are being let in on what, you know, more or less what the plan is. And then from here we sit and we wait for Stanton and Jonesy to show up. Right. And so they do, and uh, Hobbes automatically assumes that Stanton is possessed. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't even know that Jonesy's there at this point. Right, right. And so they start to have a conversation, and it turns out Jonesy is there. You know, and I think this, as soon as he gets to the cabin, I think 
this whole tail end is my favorite part of the movie. It's such a good third act. What I like about this scene is we now get to play a game of guess which one is possessed. I love it, yeah. And so I kept thinking, okay, I'm looking for little clues, especially this viewing of, okay, is any which one of them is going to let out that, you know, so-and-so's possessed? I already knew, but I was looking for that evidence. Well, yeah. and, and we, the audience, are told that Azazel is there because we get the demon vision looking at the cabin. Yep, before Stanton even shows up. Well, no, after the car pulls up, and we don't know who's in the car. Sorry, before you see Stanton on screen. Yes, yeah, yeah because... Hobbs is yelling out there on the front porch. In Aramaic, challenging him. And Stanton's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Well, and he's also talking about how you killed my brother. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everything he spews out there. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Hobbs pulls out his gun. Everyone pulls out his gun. Jonesy shows up. And right there, that's, oh, man, I just love that reveal. When Jonesy shows up, that look on Hobbs's face. Oh, shit. I'm fucked. And I think he which, knew. Which one is it? Oh, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. I thought he he kind of gave a look of, well, my attempt is over. I thought his look was he his heart broke because that's his best friend and he knows he can't get out of here, right? He can't leave. None of them can. I think That's he, the point. Yeah, he had to assume all three of them are going to die. Yep. Kind of, sort of, yeah. And, yeah. He, and he has to figure it out. Before he do, before he gets killed, right? But luckily for him, Azazel's a prick. And did you see this coming? I did the first time you saw it. You think? I don't think I expected the quick shot to the head because to me, as we've put it before, that's an oh fuck moment. <laughs> yeah, it really was. And so Hobbs drops the gun to the ground, and then from there, everybody is relieved. And then you've got Jonesy. You've been on the force for so long. You think you've seen it all, but you haven't. Because life always gives you one more surprise. And Stanton is like, yep. And then, bam! <laughs> then right after that. Sometimes, it's a big one. Yeah. And so, uh, Azazel and Hobbs scuffle. Well, Hobbs runs off into the ha- house. And right. The- they, they have a scuffle. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Here, here's my question for you. Of all the people that sang the song, you think John Goodman did it best? Oh, hands down. Not even a question. I think John Goodman did it better than the opening title sequence from the Rolling Stones because mm. he does his best Mick Jagger impression and he's taunting him. And John Goodman is so delightful in this bit. Mm. You know what I mean? And uh, Clearly goading. I like how he puts it to him that he basically says, this can go two ways and either way I win. Yep. Either I kill you and I go on to do whatever I want to do or you kill me and I possess you and I ruin your life even more. He says, I pin 20 more murders yep. on you. Yep. You know, he, he's got it all planned out. He's got it all planned out. So they scuffle and Hobbs lands up shooting Jonesy in the stomach. And this they, is where the plan unfolds. And they start chatting with each other. And I like when Hobbs pulls out the pack of cigarettes. And I love how calm he is. He's so calm. Because he he, he believes this is going to work. He, he has steeled himself for what he needs to do next. Yep. And uh, Jonesy's like, dude, you don't smoke. He says it's bad for you. And Hobbs is like, you're right, I don't. And they are bad for you. They'll Especially. Kill you. They'll kill you, yeah. Ones that are laced with poison. And Azazel or Fuck Jonesy, you. yeah, or they, he figures it out. He's like, oh, shit. 
and then that that little moment of gloating that that Hobbes gives back, Time sings it right back to him. Is on my side, and then he he grabs a little bit of the smoke from up in the air. Yeah, so classic Denzel. And what sucks about the whole thing is it was for fucking nothing. Because here comes the twist. We get this dialogue that begins with Hobbes hopefully comforting us, but this is the twist. And so, so just like I said at the start, I was beaten, outsmarted, poisoned by Detective John Hobbes. Can you imagine what it feels like to be alive for thousands of years and realize you're actually going to die? Because some self-righteous cop decided he was going to save the fucking world. Yes, a demon can die. And Hobbes figured out how to beat me at my own game. So what? The war isn't over, I promise you. Not by a long shot. And then we get that pause when he finally collapses onto the ground and he's dead. Oh, you forgot something, didn't you? At the beginning, I said I was going to tell you about the time I almost died. And then that's where the cat comes running out from underneath the oil tank and then walks up, brushes himself along the corpse of Hobbes. See you around. And then, and then the music has started just a few moments. The music just begins, Sympathy for the Devil, when he says, Oh, I forgot some. You forgot something. Probably one of my favorite needle drops in any movie. Holy fuck, it's so good. And then uh, the tune kicks in. Please allow me to introduce myself. I am a man of wealth and taste. It is so rich. Oh, so, so good. So rich. And then we cut to the city. Everyone's moving around. And you're thinking, fuck me, what just happened? Yeah. Holy shit. Now we were, what an ending. We were saying earlier about our feelings the first time seeing this movie. How did you feel about that ending? I you said you loved it. I loved it. I couldn't get enough of it. Professor? Oh, fuck yeah. What an ending. Right between the eyes. I was shot right between the eyes. I, oh man, it freaked me out. Thinking, holy shit, it's still out it's there. It's still out there, yeah. They're going to be chasing me by a bunch of people touching each other. What about you? What'd you think? I liked the the mind fuck. I love the twist at the end, because I had seen other movies kind of like this that didn't end on a happy note, that had the twist of, you know, the bad guy won. But again, I really hoped it would lead to more. And we can say this now because it's however many years later, right? I think it's smart the way they did do it because this movie stands on its own and it ends on its own. And that's that's the ending, right? Mm-hmm. The bad guys win. You asked how I felt when we first saw it. Were you like, fuck, yeah. Uh, when I watched it last night, I was mad because Why? I was rooting for Denzel the entire time, even though I knew how it ends. <laughs> I was rooting for Denzel, and then when well, he why, dies, why I was like, "God you, damn it! Why wouldn't you root for him?" Right, right. But uh, one of yeah, great ending. One of the top ten twists of all time, I would say, maybe even top five. One thing I th- I believe I remember from the first time watching it was thinking at the point where Denzel starts smoking the poison, and you know he says, "I'm basically going to die," and then remembering back to the beginning of the movie saying i almost died i'm like well how can you have poison and almost die 
what the fuck's going on here? Right. Well, I think part of us or some of us were thinking he was going to win somehow. Like that he, Denzel was going to do he it. Fake the poison or, or something. something, right? But no, it's all for naught. Evil wins. So I'd like to go back to the director. Did we say it was a, a hobbit? No, nobody said it was a hobbit. Nobody mentioned hobbits. There were no hobbits mentioned. Oh, fuck me. And now it's time for John's... Moment. This is the point in our podcast where I take whatever movie we are currently reviewing and compare it to the greatest movie series ever made, Lord of the Rings. In Fallen, Frodo is Detective John Hobbs. Hobbs is on a journey not only to stop a killer, but also a journey of understanding of the supernatural world and of faith and of closure. Hobbs Samwise, he's obviously Jonesy, his partner of 12 plus years. He is Hobbs' partner and closest friend, his support, and the one who tries to protect Hobbs throughout the movie. Gandalf in Fallen would be Greta. While she doesn't come into the movie until a quarter of the way through, she does put Hobbes on the path of finding the truth and opens his eyes to the supernatural and to gaining faith. Mary and Pippin, that would be Hobbes' brother Art and nephew Sam. Now, while typically Mary and Pippin are more of comic relief in the movie, at least early on, they also represent a role that assists Frodo on his journey. And in this case, in Fallen, Art and Sam spiritually propel Hobbes on his journey, acting as more of an inspiration for his direction. So that would make our fellowship Hobbes, Jonesy, Greta, Art, and Sam. For Theoden, I would say Lieutenant Stanton kind of fits that role. He's the king of the castle, or in this case, the precinct. While he wants to side with Hobbes, he is forced to focus on protecting others within his kingdom. For Gollum, I felt that that was Detective Lou who fit that role. He came across as a very selfish character, only caring about the things that affect him directly, and he gave the impression that he had a little bit of corruption already within him. Sauron? Well, that's pretty easy. That was Azazel. He's the one that wants to basically destroy the world and end humankind. So what is the precious, what is the one ring? In Fallen, the ring is represented by the struggle between good and evil, the temptation to give in to your darkest urges. There's a scene in the movie where it's brought up that officers are often tempted to break the law themselves, while at the same time upholding it. At one point, it's even mentioned that of police, that 99% are good but there are a percentage, or at least a percentage within the officers, that could be a bit corrupt. Hobbes is seen as the cop who only walks the light side, but Azazel tempts him to go dark, leading him to shoot the teacher, and in the end, take his own life. While the intent was righteous, if you think about it, suicide is still a sin, according to the Bible. And there you have it, my comparison between Fallen and Lord of the Rings. Bring on the grades. What you got, buddy? Uh, I, I agree with the fellowship. You know, the usual suspects are there. I think that the uh, the call for Lou to be Gollum, I, I agree with that too. And uh, the the ring, uh, the struggle between good and evil, I, I think that that, uh, that works. It kind of sort of has to be. I agree with the Azazel. 
is is going to be Sauron. That last little bit at the end about you know the suicide bit, and it's like, eh, all right. So I don't know. I I'm somewhere somewhere between. Uh, I'll go B minus. B minus. Uh, I do liked, I liked the lube bit cause, um, yeah, definitely. I saw a golem in a, there was, uh, yeah, traits there. Uh, everyone else, usual suspects. Good job. The ring. Yeah. For, for what it is. I mean, it fits and, uh, I, I buy it. So I'm going to give you a B minus as well. I was going to say this one was a really difficult one to come up with the precious, come up with the ring of what was the corruption and what was the thing that everybody was seeking. And I think for Denzel, it was the idea of being the good cop, being the one representing his family and not losing that. There you go. And that was John's. Moment. So what do you guys think? You guys ready to rate this flick? I'm ready to rate this flick. Johnny, ready to rate this flick? Azalufli. Yeah, yeah, there it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, professor, how do we do our ratings? We do our ratings on a scale of one to five fucks. Five fucks is a movie that we think is cinematic gold. Somebody says to you, hey, you want to watch Fallen? Fuck yeah, I do. A one fuck movie is you watch it and there's just no redeeming value. You know you're never going to watch it again. It's just, you know, there, there's nothing that you feel like ever seeing again. And what's a zero? A zero fuck movie is... Oh, for shit's sake. What the hell was that? Why would you make me watch that? I want two hours and four minutes of my life back. Or in other words, we just don't give a fuck. Guess what there, bud? Uh, My movie, my turn. I go first. You go first. Fallen. Fallen is an entertaining movie for me to watch, and it is delightfully creepy. It is such a wonderful misdirect that we have... Denzel Washington narrating the story of the antagonist. We have the protagonist voice narrating on behalf of the antagonist. And what a lovely reveal it is. The characters, Hobbs, love him. Played to perfection with Denzel Washington. Totally buy it. John Goodman's Jonesy, lovable character, very much his right-hand man, and I thought that finishing it out with Donald Sutherland being uh, Lieutenant Stanton, I loved his character. I, I loved the way he delivered his lines. And it's sad, it's bittersweet at the end that, you know, these all three of these characters are killed in the story, and it only leaves us with Lou, which, by the way, Lou, he, he I thought that he was a good character too. Somebody that we understand is, you know, not necessarily... Uh, uh, a, a great guy. He's probably a good guy, but not necessarily a great guy. Greta, I've really enjoyed the story arc that Greta and John share with each other and how they show their commitment and their bond with each other. It is so bittersweet to see ha- how we lose art, but I feel very comforted that the story ends most likely with Greta and Sam together. The third act of the movie, Out at the Cabin, so, so good. And I enjoy watching it every time I've watched it. The movie has its somber moments that are done very well when we have the, uh, the piano and the cello playing. And, and it always just sounds so sad and, and dreary. And, and I really 
thought that those musical tones were done very well. And I, I have to say, ever since I saw this movie the first time, I always go back to this movie whenever I hear time is on my side. And I think that it is a perfect way to end the movie with sympathy for the devil. It is just so well put together that way. I give this movie a solid four fucks. Four fucks from the professor. All right, what do you think there? You or me? I'll go next. All right, buddy. But before I do, <laughs> would you like to guess my rating? Oh, sure. Um, You are going to give Fallen... Three and a half fucks. Is that your final answer? It's my final answer. Okay. In the realm of cinemagraphic lore comes Fallen to the fore. A tale of darkness, mystery, and what could be in store. Denzel Washington, our lead, a detective so astute in a plot that weaves and twists and holds the bitter fruit. Azazel, the demon, a spirit cruel and vile, Transfers from host to host, causing turmoil all the while. His sinister smile is deceiving, his charm unsettling and eerie, creating an atmosphere that's dark, haunting, and weary. The cinematography, a blend of gloom and frost, holds the viewer captive in a world where hope is lost. Elias Cotes, while a performance worthy of note, plays a role so haunting it sends chills down the throat. But the plot is complex, and at times it seems astray, a jumbled labyrinth of threads leaving the viewers in dismay. Even though the concept's enticing, the execution falls flat, leaving us wanting more, seeking this and that. Yet there's a certain charm that's found within its gloom, a spark within the darkness, a flower yet to bloom. Though it doesn't reach perfection or the heights to which it looks, for the ambitious storytelling, I give Fallen three and a half fucks. Right on, right on. Three and a half fucks from the comic book guy. I think Fallen is a really good movie. I remember being super excited to see it back in 98 when it came out. I remember loving the ending. And I think that because... I was pissed last night watching it, rooting for Denzel, knowing that he's not going to win. I think that says something about the movie, and I think it says something about Denzel. And like I said earlier, anything with Denzel already starts at two and a half fucks for me. So you add in John Goodman, you add in Donald Sutherland, you add in the story, and you add in that third act, that is going to lead to 3.75 fucks from me. With... Four solid fucks from the professor, three and a half fucks from the comic book guy, and 3.75 fucks from yours truly. That gives Fallen an average of 3.75 fucks, which puts it in the 14th spot tied with Hell or High Water, The Blues Brothers, and Booksmart. It is slightly better than Green Street Hooligans, Dogma, Talladega Nights, Halloween, and Interstellar, and slightly worse than Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Rambo, First Blood Part 2. That sounds about right. Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. John, what was your favorite scene in the movie or the favorite moment in the movie for you? I think it has to go back to what Don was saying, and I think you were saying this too, the, the Greta chase scene. 
that scene was just so impacting. And so and I, I couldn't remember this time if she got away. So it was still suspenseful for to me thinking, oh, she's fucked. Yeah. Cool. What, what about you? Uh, it's the chase. And then my, my second favorite is uh, the reveal as Azazel sings Time is on My Side going around the... Uh, the, the police station. All good stuff. All good stuff. What about you? From the moment Stanton and Jonesy show up to the cabin to the end. So, yeah. So good. All right. That is going to wrap it up for this episode of Three Guys in a Flick. If you would like to know which movie we are going to be reviewing next, please check out our website. And speaking of which, hey, John, where can they find us? They can find us at www.threeguysinaflick.com where we post all of our show notes. You can find all of our podcasts. We put up blog articles related to the movies that we are reviewing, as well as you can go there and submit movie ideas that you would like us to review next. You can find us at all of social media, as well as any place that hosts podcasts. All right. I just want to thank Zach, Ronnie, and Jill for listening. Keep on listening. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Ronnie. Thanks, Jill. And I want to throw out a special shout-out to my daughter-in-law, Mackenzie. May your day... Be filled with love and happiness. Especially after watching this happy movie. That's right. I also want to thank anyone else who listens and who has suggested a movie. If you keep listening, we'll keep recording. For Three Guys in a Flick, I'm Don. I'm John. And I'm Ken. Thanks for listening. Beginning, I said I was going to tell you about the time I almost died. See you around. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man well Professor, do you have a porn name for this movie? No. You do, right? Don, do you have one? Do you? I have one. Okay, hang on, hang on. Fallen, fallen, fallen. I even have a script. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, by all means, I'm all ears now, buddy. Well, I would change Fallen to Flaccid. Okay. And then the demon still possess, you know, possesses people by touch, but they get erectile dysfunction every time he touches them. Well, that's not much of a porn. That's, you, you want the erection to be full and going, don't you? Well, maybe. Uh, quick trivia question, jackholes. Quick trivia question for you, boys. Elias Cotez. No, no, no. What? It's Elias Coteus. Because uh, it says Elias. It's pronounced right there. It's pronounced Elias Coteus. Elias? That's how he pronounces his name anyway. Well, he's wrong. Elias Coteus. Elias Coteus. Tanning Tatum. Wow. Not bad. Not bad at all. So this is directed by Gregory Hoblet. Did you say Hobbit? Not yet, dude. It's not time. Let's get excited. It's not time. Or did you want to stop that? No, you can do it. No, I'm just asking you. Did you forget? Hello. John, you ready to rate this flick? Why the hell not? Yeah, not as not as catchy and punny as yeah. as per usual. I think of anything else. Yeah. I, I, I feel possessed to do it. That's better. Is on my side. Yes, it is. All right, fuck up. Good night. <laughs>